0: to another supporter-only episode of Conversations with Coleman. Today I'm going to talk about the only thing anyone is talking about, race and the police. I'm going to read an essay that I wrote for City Journal called Stories and Data, and I'm going to provide some additional thoughts in the margins. Before I do that, I want to thank everyone who supports the podcast and everyone who sends me messages of support on Twitter or through email. Though I can never guarantee a response to your messages, please rest assured that I do read many of them. The resounding theme in many emails I'm receiving lately is that people are having trouble discussing current events with their friends and family. The fear of being seen as a bad person, merely for asking questions, is palpable and widespread. The prospect of losing jobs or simply losing face understandably terrifies people. I'll have more to say about this towards the end, but for now suffice it to say that if you're in that situation, I hear you and I very much feel your pain. Okay, on to the essay. The brutal death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police officers has sparked protests and riots around the United States. We have witnessed humanity at its finest and at its ugliest. Citizens of faraway nations have expressed solidarity with black Americans. Police officers have marched alongside protesters. Protesters have defended businesses against looting and destruction. At the same time, rioters have burned down buildings and looted businesses. Protesters have been pepper sprayed and beaten. Cops have been shot and run over with cars. At the root of the unrest is the Black Lives Matter movement, which began with the acquittal of George Zimmerman in 2013 and rose to national prominence in the wake of Michael Brown's death in 2014. My view of BLM is mixed. On the one hand, I agree that police departments too often have tolerated and even enabled corruption. Rather than relying on impartial third parties, departments often decide whether to discipline their own officers. The legal doctrine of qualified immunity sets what many say is an unreasonably high bar for civilians bringing civil rights lawsuits against police officers. Body cams, which increase transparency to the benefit of both wrongly treated police suspects and wrongly accused police officers, are not yet universal. In the face of police unions which oppose even reasonable reforms, Black Lives Matter seems a force for positive change. On the other hand, the basic premise of Black Lives Matter, that racist cops are killing unarmed black people, is false. There was a time when I believed it. I was one year younger than Trayvon Martin when he was killed in 2012, and like many black men, I felt like he could have been me. I was the same age as Michael Brown when he was killed in 2014, and like so many others, I shared the Black Lives Matter hashtag on social media to express my solidarity. By 2015, when the now-familiar list had grown to include Tamir Rice, Laquan McDonald, Sandra Bland, Freddie Gray, and Walter Scott, I began wearing a shirt with all of their names on it. It became my favorite shirt. It seemed plain as day to me that these were not just tragedies, racist tragedies. Any suggestion to the contrary struck me as at best ignorant, and at worst, bigoted my opinion has slowly changed. I still believe that racism exists and must be condemned in the strongest possible terms. I still believe that, on average, police officers are quicker to rough up a black or Hispanic suspect. And I still believe that police misconduct happens far too often and routinely goes unpunished. But I no longer believe that the cops disproportionately kill unarmed black Americans. Two things changed my mind. Stories and data. First, the stories. Each story in this paragraph involves a police officer killing an unarmed white person. And to demonstrate how commonly this happens, I've taken all of them from a single year, 2015, chosen at random. Timothy Smith was killed by a police officer who mistakenly thought he was reaching into his waistband to grab a gun. The shooting was ruled justified. William Lemon was killed after he allegedly failed to show his hands upon request. The shooting was ruled justified. Ryan Bollinger was shot dead by a cop who said he was moving strangely and walking toward her. The shooting was ruled justified. Derek Cruz was shot in the face moments after he opened the door for police officers serving a warrant for a drug arrest. The cops recovered marijuana from his property, and the shooting was ruled justified. Daniel Elrod robbed a dollar store and when confronted by police, allegedly failed to raise his hands upon request, though his widow, who witnessed the event, insists otherwise. He was shot dead. No criminal charges were filed. Ralph Willis was shot dead when officers mistakenly thought that he was reaching for a gun. David Kasich was shot twice in the back by a police officer while lying face down on the ground. Six-year-old Jeremy Martis was killed by a police officer while sitting in the passenger seat of a car. The officer's intended target was his father, who was sitting in the driver's seat, with his hands raised out the window. Autumn Steele was shot dead when a police officer, startled by her German shepherd, immediately fired his weapon at the animal, catching her in the crossfire. Shortly after he killed her, body cam footage revealed his despair. I'm fucking going to prison, he says the officer was not disciplined. For brevity's sake, I'll stop there. But the list goes on. For every black person killed by the police, there's at least one white person, usually many, killed in a similar way. The day before cops barged into the home of Breonna Taylor and killed her, cops barged into the home of a white man named Duncan Lemp, killed him, and wounded his girlfriend who was sleeping beside him. Even George Floyd, whose death was particularly brutal, has a white counterpart, Tony Timpa. Timpa was killed in 2016 by a Dallas police officer who used his knee to pin Timpa to the ground, face down, for 12 minutes. Rather than the knee be on Timpa's neck, as in the case of George Floyd, it was on his upper back. In the video, you can hear Timpa whimpering and begging to be let go. After he lets out his final breaths, the officers begin cracking jokes about him, telling him to wake up for school. Criminal charges initially brought against them were later dropped. Let me pause there a moment just to linger on this point. I really encourage all of you to watch the video of Tony Timpa being killed. Just search it in YouTube and it will be the first one that comes up. And observe how you feel when you watch the video. Notice your own emotions. Do you feel the same way that you felt when you saw the video of Derek Chauvin killing George Floyd? Just notice that. Some of you may find that you do, some of you may find that you don't. But it's a worthwhile experiment to run on yourself, I think. At a gut level, it's hard for most people to feel the same level of outrage when the cops kill a white person. And perhaps that's as it should be. After all, for most of American history, it was white suffering that provoked more outrage. But I would submit that if this new anti-racist bias is justified, if we now have a moral obligation to care more about certain lives than others based on skin color or based on racial historical blood guilt, then everything I thought I knew about basic morality And everything that the world's philosophical and religious traditions have been saying about common humanity, revenge, forgiveness, since antiquity, should be thrown out the window. I'm going to get to places where I agree with some elements of Black Lives Matter in a moment, but for now I want to linger on a central fallacy at the core movement. There really is an emperor has no clothes moment. That we need to have with Black Lives Matter. And it's this. The foundational premise of Black Lives Matter is that there's a widespread belief today that Black lives don't matter. When BLM comes under fire for having a divisive slogan, the first method of self defense is to claim that they're correcting an imbalance that already exists. According to them, the status quo is that. People don't care enough about Black lives. Americans in general only care when the victim is white. And the slogan Black Lives Matter is therefore a necessary corrective to a racist status quo. But the success of the Black Lives Matter movement itself has directly contradicted that premise. How many Americans know the name Tony Timpa? How many Americans know the name Daniel Shaver? How many Americans know the name Dylan Noble? These are all white people who were killed by the cops on camera. If they were black, their names would have been on my t-shirt. The very fact that so many people know the names Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin and Alton Sterling and Breonna Taylor, the very fact that these names are widely known is proof that the foundational premise of Black Lives Matter is wrong. The emperor has no clothes point to make here. The point that is obvious, but that you are not allowed to think, much less say, is that in the year 2020, and in the past decade at least, America only cares when the victim is black. It's precisely the reverse of the bias that Black Lives Matter thinks it's correcting for. Okay, back to the text. You might agree that the police kill plenty of unarmed white people too, but object that they are more likely to kill unarmed black people. That's where the data comes in. The objection is true as far as it goes, but it's also misleading. To demonstrate that racial bias is behind this disparity, it's not enough to cite the fact that black people comprise 14% of the U.S. population, but about 35% of unarmed Americans shot dead by police. By that logic, you could prove that police shootings were extremely sexist by pointing out that men comprise 50% of the population, but 93% of unarmed Americans shot by cops. Instead, you must do what all good social scientists do, control for confounding variables to isolate the effect that one variable has upon another. In this case, the effect of a suspect's race on a cop's decision to pull the trigger. At least four careful studies have done this. One by Harvard economist Roland Fryer, one by a group of public health researchers, one by the economist Sadil Moulinathan, and one by David Johnson et al., None of these studies have found a racial bias in deadly shootings. Of course, that hardly settles the issue for all time. As always, more research is needed. But given the studies already done, it seems unlikely that future work will uncover anything close to the amount of racial bias that BLM protesters in America and around the world believe exists. Okay, let me pause here to address the most common critique I received of my essay, which was that I cherry-picked the Roland Fryer paper, which famously found that there was no anti-Black bias in deadly shootings in 10 American cities. The other thing that that paper found was that police officers are more likely to use non-lethal force on a Black suspect. That is, to put their hands on a suspect to use a baton for example and the disparity there hovered around 20% more likely so i didn't include that sentence in this paragraph and people seemed to think that that amounted to cherry picking which was bizarre to me because at the beginning of the essay i said that quote i still believe that police officers are more likely to rough up a Black or Hispanic suspect. And as evidence for that claim, I linked to the Roland Fryer paper. So the idea that I was only promoting some of the findings of that paper and not others is belied by the first few paragraphs of my essay. And it's worth inserting here that it's not only the case that Fryer found that there was no anti-black bias. In fact, he found that there was an anti-white bias in deadly shootings. So to summarize again, there are two seemingly contradictory findings in this empirical, rigorous paper that Roland Fryer did. One was that the police are more likely to use non-lethal force on black suspects And one was that the police are more likely to use lethal force, that is, guns, on white suspects. Now, how to understand all of this is a PhD dissertation-level question. But that's the state of the very best research at this moment. And we should acknowledge the research is not very good. We've only had a national database of police shootings that was anywhere near accurate for five years, thanks to the Washington Post and the Guardian. Before that, there was a semi-official database by the FBI that literally undercounted the number of unarmed Americans killed by cops by like half, which is egregious. Okay, back to the essay my view of Black Lives Matter is complicated. If not for BLM, we probably would not be talking about ending qualified immunity, making body cams universal, increasing police accountability, so forth. At least not to the same extent. In fact, we might not even have a careful national database on police shootings. At the same time, the core premise of the movement is false. And if not for the dissemination of this falsehood, Social relations between black people and white people would be less tense, trust in police would be higher, and businesses all across the nation might have been spared the looting and destruction that they've seen in recent weeks. I do want to say something here briefly about qualified immunity and whether it makes sense to get rid of it, because I'm genuinely undecided about this. Just to give a brief summary, qualified immunity is a doctrine that requires, in cases where civilians are bringing civil rights lawsuits against government officials, that there be a clear violation rights. What that means is, if a police officer does something that I think is horrible to me, searches and destroys my house, for example, before I can bring a civil rights lawsuit against the cop- himself, I have to find something in case precedent where, in a similar situation, a lawsuit was successfully prosecuted. And if I can't find something that is sufficiently similar, I actually can't bring a lawsuit against him, much less win it. So at a glance, this seems like a great candidate for something to get rid of in order to increase police accountability. But at the same time, it's not clear that the status quo is worse than what would obtain if we got rid of qualified immunity. It's possible that we get rid of qualified immunity and civil rights lawsuits, some justified and some not, spike against police officers. And keep in mind, they're being held individually liable for damages, in this case, on a salary of, say, $55,000 a year. So imagine we're now requiring cops to purchase their own insurance for what amounts to malpractice lawsuits. For starters, this is basically the equivalent of giving every police officer in America a huge pay cut. And not only that it would give a larger pay cut to police officers working in more dangerous neighborhoods, which seems like the exact opposite of the incentives we want to create in order to both deal with crime and curb the issue of police brutality at the same time. So all that to say, it's, it's not as obvious to me as it seems to many people that ending qualifying immunity is a no-brainer, the way that universal body cams. Are a no brainer. At the same time, I've seen some examples where qualified immunity protects a cop who did something that I really do see as indefensible. So I'm genuinely undecided about that issue and looking for rigorous evidence based research about what would happen if we ended it. Okay, back to the essay. Isn't this the price of progress? Isn't there a long tradition of using violence to throw off the shackles of white supremacy, going back to the Haitian Revolution and the American Civil War? Didn't the urban riots of the late 60s wake Americans up to the fact that racism didn't end with the Civil Rights Act? To start, any analogy to slave rebellions or justified revolutions should be dismissed immediately. Taking up arms directly against people enslaving you is one thing. Looting clothing stores or destroying grocery stores is something else entirely. You must be careful not to confuse the protesters with the rioters. The former are committed to nonviolence, most part. The latter are simply criminal and should be treated as such. What people don't realize about riots is how destructive they are to the communities in question for years, and often for decades. I visited Ferguson, Missouri last year and witnessed the stores that are abandoned buildings now still haven't returned because of the riots that took place in 2014. And some of those stores were Black-owned, for what it's worth. Imagine how you would feel if a group of white supremacists burned down a Black-owned barbershop. And then consider that the exact same effect is what happens as a result of riots. It's just that the person doing the burning happens to be of a different color. Do you think that matters to the Black business owner who loses his livelihood as a result of the riots? Do you think it matters to the investor who no longer wants to give a loan to a new business owner in that area? Do you think it matters to the business owner who doesn't get the loan? These are all the questions that people who are tempted to defend the riots should be asking themselves. As for the riots of the 1960s, progressives should not praise them for shocking Americans into action without also noting that they helped elect Richard Nixon president, which progressives certainly did not intend, that they directly decreased the wealth of inner-city black homeowners, and that they scared capital away from inner cities for decades, worsening the very conditions of poverty and unemployment that the rioters were supposedly protesting. Let me briefly expand on some of these points. Regardless of what you think about the riots, you have to admit, from a pragmatic point of view, they are a huge gift to Donald Trump. The fact that there was actually a part of a major American city, namely Seattle, that the police more or less officially abandoned for several weeks, that is a huge gift to a president who styles himself as someone who cares about law and order. If you want American politics to resume some semblance of sanity by having a moderate Democrat like Joe Biden be president then you have to oppose the riots, and you have to oppose the naive, utopian expectation that without police, somehow civilization remains on the rails. As Steven Pinker noted in my podcast with him, and in his famous book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Having the state monopoly on violence is one of the best things that humans have ever come up with. It's so good that we've forgotten how good it is. We just take for granted, at least most of us do, that when something horrible happens, you can call a three-digit number and people with guns will show up to protect you. That's amazing. And places that don't have that Devolve into tit for tat violence of the kind that you read in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, or you see in West Side Story, or you see in the pockets of America where violent crime is still a huge issue. Almost no one wants to live like this when given the choice. The migrants of the world flock to places that have solid institutions of law and order. They vote with their feet for a reason. And I also want to make a point about the relationship between wealth and crime. The clearest way to talk about this is with reference to gentrification. This is the process by which wealthy, usually white, People move into a neighborhood that was previously all black or all minority as crime decreases and property values increase. I wrote a piece a few months ago on this called Why Do Progressives Hate Gentrification? And in that piece, I cover the largest study done on the effects of gentrification, which showed that gentrifying neighborhoods led to enormously increased wealth for low-income Black residents that own small properties. We've been hearing about the racial wealth gap for the past five or six years especially, and there's nothing worse for the racial wealth gap than riots in predominantly Black communities. Okay, back to the essay. The case for violence rests on the false notion that without it, little progress can be made. But recent history tells a different story. In 2018, the NYPD killed five people, down from 93 in 1971. Since 2001, the national incarceration rate for black men ages 18 to 29 has gone down by more than half. Put simply, We know progress through normal democratic means is possible because we've already done it. If you want to know more about the enormous progress that Black Americans have made in incarceration rates and health and life expectancy and education and economics and so forth, I encourage you to look up my essay called The Case for Black Optimism in Quillette from about nine months ago. In a perfect world, I would like to see the yearly number of unarmed Americans killed by police decrease from 55, which is the number from 2019, to zero. But the more I think about how we would achieve this, the less optimistic I am. At a glance, copying the policies of nations with very few police shootings seems like a promising path. But on closer inspection, one realizes how uniquely challenging the American situation is. First, America is a huge country, the third largest in the world by population. That means that extremely low-probability events, such as police shootings or lightning strikes, for example, will happen much more frequently here than they do elsewhere. For example, if America were the size of Canada, but otherwise identical, About six unarmed people would have been killed by the police last year, instead of 55. Second, America is a gun country, which means that policing in America is fundamentally different than policing in other nations. When the cops pull someone over in the United Kingdom, the rate of gun ownership is less than one twentieth the American rate they have almost no reason to fear that the person they've stopped has a pistol hidden in the glove compartment. That's not true in America, where a cop gets shot almost every day. So long as we're a gun country, American police will always be liable to mistake a suspect's wallet or smartphone for a gun. And we won't be able to completely legislate that fear away. At least not completely. To be clear, I'm not expressing pessimism about the possibility of getting rid of George Floyd or Tony Timpa-style incidents. I can imagine getting to a place where that never happens or almost never happens. What I'm expressing pessimism about the idea that we could possibly get the number from 55, which is already probably an all-time low to zero. I can imagine us making significantly more progress, for instance, cutting that number in half. But as you make more progress, it becomes harder to make progress because you take the low-hanging fruit first. You get rid of the truly horrible and deeply unnecessary police killings where the cop didn't even have a reason to fear for his life. And once you get rid of those, you're left with the instances where cops really did have a reason to fear for their life. And that's necessarily much harder to reform. Okay, continuing. A third factor, which is not unique to America, is that we live in the smartphone age, which means that there are millions of cameras at the ready to ensure that the next police shooting goes viral. Overall, this is a good thing. It means that cops can no longer reliably get away with lying about their misbehavior to escape punishment. And it means that claims of those accusing the police in such situations will face objective video scrutiny. But it also means that our news feeds are perpetually filled with outlier events presented to us as if they were the norm. In other words, we could cut the rate of deadly shootings by 99%. But if the remaining 1% are filmed, the public perception will be that shootings have remained steady. And it's the public perception, more than the underlying reality, that provokes riots. Combine all three of these observations and we arrive at a grim conclusion. As long as we have a non-zero rate of deadly shootings, which is a virtual certainty, and as long as some shootings are filmed and go viral which is also a virtual certainty, then we may live in perpetual fear of urban unrest for the foreseeable future. The only way out of this conundrum, so it seems to me, is for millions of Americans on the left to realize that deadly police shootings happen to black people and white people alike. As long as a critical mass of people view this as a race issue, they'll see every new video of a black person being killed as yet another injustice in a long chain dating back to the Middle Passage. That sentiment, when it's felt deeply and earnestly, reliably produced large protests and destructive riots. The political right has a role to play as well. For too long, All Lives Matter has been a slogan used only as a clapback to Black Lives Matter. What it should have been, and still could be, is a true movement to reduce the number of Americans shot by the police on a race-neutral basis. If the challenge for the left is to accept that the real problem with the police isn't racism, the challenge for the right is to accept that there are real problems with the police. I want to talk briefly about the proposed solutions to this problem, namely defunding the police or dismantling the police. Now, Strangely, I disagree with defunding the police, but in some contexts I agree with dismantling and replacing the police, as was done in, for example, Camden, New Jersey, where city police were replaced by a higher number of county police that were more competent for various reasons. That kind of reform, though it may seem more drastic or more radical, actually makes more sense, to me at least. But this focus on defunding the police seems fundamentally confused. Just think for a moment about what the end goal is. The end goal is for the police to do their jobs while minimizing the extent to which they brutalize citizens for no good reason and kill citizens, unnecessarily. That's the goal. Notice, nothing I just said had anything to do with the total dollar amount going to their budgets. So right off the bat, the burden is on proponents of defunding the police to prove to me that there is some necessary link between the total dollar amount that a city police budget has and the degree to which they brutalize and kill citizens unnecessarily. No such link has been evidenced by the Black Lives Matter movement, and it seems people aren't even asking the question. If we want cops to receive more training, because the average number of hours a cop has to train is in some cases less than for professions that seem completely trivial by comparison, which is to say professions that have nothing to do with life and death, like bakery. Why is the obvious lesson that we need less funding police rather than more? I'm not saying we do need more funding. I'm saying it's just not obvious. If we have a problem with bad public school teachers, Would the first solution be defund public schools? I'm not sure. It might be fund public schools more. It might be pay teachers a higher salary so we can attract some of these elite people that would otherwise go work on Wall Street. The same might be true of policing. I saw a news article about police officers in Brookline, Massachusetts, that were working 80-hour work weeks for the overtime, but also because police departments are understaffed. Not enough people want to be cops relative to how many cops we need. Again, I fail to see how the takeaway from these problems, whether it's cops that are underslept because they're working for too long, or cops that are undertrained, I fail to see how the takeaway from any of this is we need to give police departments less money. Again, we have to just keep the goal in sight here and as rigorously as possible, ask how we're going to get there. If the level of discourse among our public officials stays where it currently is, partisan and shallow, then there's not much hope. In a worst-case scenario, we may see a repeat of the George Floyd riots every few years. But if we can elevate the national discourse, we can actually have that honest and uncomfortable conversation about race that people have been claiming to want for years. Then we might just have a chance. Okay, that's where my essay ends. And I hope you found it useful especially if you are finding it difficult to talk to your friends and family about these issues. I'm often asked what advice I have for people who struggle to talk about sensitive political issues with people in their circle. And I guess I have a few kinds of advice. One is to know when to not talk about it. Is it the best time to talk about politics when everyone in your family is drunk and people seem a little bit on edge to begin with? Maybe not. There is wisdom in picking your battles, and especially in picking your timing. At the same time, these conversations need to happen. And if they can't happen among your friends, your family members, where there's already Decades of good faith built up. There's already the knowledge that you're a fundamentally good person. There's already love there. If you can't have the conversations with your friends and family, then we are doomed as a country. If you do find the time is right to have the conversation, then there are a few simple tips that you can always follow to lubricate conversation emotionally for both of you. One is just to look for the things you agree with in whatever was just said for you say what you disagree with. There's almost always something in what a person says, even if it's something they only implied without directly saying, that you can agree with genuinely. And if you agree with it, especially at a longer length than just one sentence, then that can do a lot of work to diffuse the psychological resistance they have to the point you want to make. That's a very simple piece of advice, but it can also work wonders. And it is no doubt, an underutilized technique. My impression from the emails I'm getting is that a lot of people feel alone right now. They feel crazy. They feel like they're the one person in their immediate circle that has some doubts about the tsunami of identity politics that is sweeping over the nation right now. They think they might be crazy or might be a racist, but at the same time, they can't extinguish the voice in their head, the skeptical voice that is saying, wait a minute, is that true? We have to honor that skeptical voice. We know all around the world and throughout history, there's this phenomenon of preference falsification, where a widespread belief is falsely thought to be a minority belief. An example that stuck with me from one of Cass Sunstein's books is the guardianship laws in Saudi Arabia, where women need to have a male guardian, either a brother or a father or something like that, in order to leave the house. There was some study which suggested that individually a large number of men disagreed with these laws and thought they were annoying and retrograde and immoral. But those men all thought they were in the minority believing that because it was such a taboo opinion. So you have this gigantic spiral of silence where everyone is pretending to believe something because they believe they're the only ones don't believe it. And there's no doubt that something like that is happening at this moment with identity politics and with the claims being made about how much racism exists in American society. There is racism. Black people have borne the brunt of it. But the loudest voices coming from the far left and from Black Lives Matter are absolutely deluded about the extent to which Racism exists in this country at this moment. So I implore you to speak up if you think it's wise. And while always being aware that you yourself have certain cognitive biases that lead you to seek out evidence that supports your pre-existing beliefs, you also have a duty to say what you think is true. And every conversation matters. As Christopher Hitchens would sometimes say, Grave will supply plenty of time for silence on this issue. So don't be silent now.